The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now, we're only going to be looking at chap- uh, verses 3 through 10, but I've got to read the whole chapter. It's so good. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Easter is all about Jesus. It's a special day for Christians all over the world because we celebrate Jesus isn't dead. Because he's been raised, we have what the author of Hebrews calls so great a salvation. So great a salvation. In this passage, he talks about the immeasurable greatness of God's power, the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's amazing how, how lofty the language is in the New Testament about what God has done for us in Christ. And I wonder how many of us actually think about or conceive of our salvation in these terms. So great, immeasurable greatness of God's power revealed in Christ, unsearchable riches. I heard a preacher sort of frame our trite ways of thinking about salvation like this. He said, to some of us, God is kind of like a principal who catches us smoking in the restroom. And he goes to punish us, and there's this really kind classmate, Jesus, who takes our suspension or detention or whatever it is, and so we get to go home with a clean track record. For some of us, maybe salvation is primarily about getting our afterlife sorted out. It's primarily about figuring out what the afterlife looks like and figuring out what hoops I need to jump through, what prayers I need to pray, 
saying this or that formulation, getting dunked in water in order to get a good afterlife. Not that I think of the Christian view of the afterlife as all that interesting, it just seems better than the alternative. Maybe that's some of you here. Or maybe some of you, salvation in your mind is God looking down on us, seeing how poorly we behave and how poorly we love each other, and so he decided to send Jesus in order to come sort us out and show us a better way. Now beginning today and over the next three Sundays, we're going to look at Ephesians 1, and we're just going to marvel at a tiny minuscule, bite-sized portion of a sliver, of a piece, of a fraction, of a glimpse of all that Jesus has done for us as his people. We're going to explore what Paul calls, calls the unsearchable riches of Christ over the next three Sundays. Beginning today, we're going to look at verses 3 through 10 tonight. Next Sunday, we're going to look at verses 11 through 14. And then the following Sunday, we're going to look at verses 15 through 23. And here's what we hope happens over the course of this series. You ready? change. We come in worn down, ground down by life and circumstances, but Christian, we hope you would be enlivened by what you see God doing in Christ in these scriptures. For the Christians here, we pray that you would find your adoration of Jesus deepened and enriched more than it was before, that you would come into a fuller understanding of what Jesus has done, and that he presses us deeper into Jesus, the living, active, real, present tense ruler of all things. And if you aren't a Christian, we want to see you become Christians, because we love Jesus, and we believe in Jesus, and we believe in the life of Jesus and Jesus' people, and we want to see you love and believe and share in this great salvation too. That's what we hope for through this series. And so tonight, we're going to look at seven things that God has done for his people in Jesus. Seven things that God has done for his people in Jesus. If you're a Christian, I'm speaking to you. The scriptures are speaking to you. If you're not a Christian, these truths you are looking in on. And honestly, we want you to be on the inside of. Now, Ephesians is a letter from an early Christian missionary and theologian, a guy named Paul. Paul wrote this letter to a bunch of house churches around Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. If you Google pictures of Ephesus, it is astoundingly beautiful. That whole portion of the world is just gorgeous. And it's easy for us to forget that this was a real man speaking to real people with real faces and real histories and all the rest. Now, Paul was an apostle, meaning he was a man who was called and commissioned by Jesus himself a few years after Jesus' ministry. Jesus parted the clouds, literally, and called Paul to devote his life to planting churches, sharing the gospel, and suffering for his namesake. Now, at the time of this writing in Ephesians, Paul was probably imprisoned in Rome, and he was imprisoned for his fidelity to Jesus and fidelity to the message of Jesus. And actually, he tells us his reason for writing the book of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 and 22. I'll have it on the screen. He says, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So he says, I'm writing this letter and I'm sending it via Tychicus. This is one of his his bros and he's sending this message and he's he's wanting Tychicus to relay how Paul's doing and he's wanting Tychicus to encourage these Christians. And if you read through the book of Ephesians, it is just dripping with encouragement. It is so, so, so good. Now, what I love about this section that we're going to talk about tonight, this particular section has more than 200 Greek words, and it is one sentence. Maybe you picked up on that as you were reading it. Tons of commas and interjections and interjections of the interjections of the interjections. It's called a pleonasm. Does anybody know what a pleonasm is? Uh, Me neither, but I read about it this week. 
It's where you use more words than are necessary to get a point across. It's where you say the same thing over and over again to make the point. It's just effusive with praise. Paul stacks truth upon truth upon truth in these series of beautiful, beautiful reflections on the great salvation we have in Christ. Let's look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christian, the first thing that God has done for you is he has blessed you in Christ. Now, what comes to mind when you typically think of blessings? For me, it's when we get the family around the dinner table and we volunteer one of our children to say the blessing. And it's usually, you know, God is great, God is good, food is good, thank you for this food, amen, something like that. And that's very true, that God blesses us with families, and he blesses us with provision of food, jobs, and health. But that's not exactly what Paul has in mind in here. Because what he says is that God has blessed us in Christ. Blessed us in Christ. Now, this terminology is incredibly significant. In fact, it's almost hard to overstate how, how important this idea of being in Christ is for the Apostle Paul. Maybe you've heard Christians talk about Jesus being in our hearts, that Christ is in us, or that God is in us. We hear that a lot, and that's a, a common way that evangelicals talk about our experience of salvation. But you know how many times Paul actually makes reference to Christ being in us in his letters? It's about five times, give or take. And if he says it once, it matters, right? But the inversion of that, Christians being in Christ, the pastor friend of mine recently pointed out that some variation of that phrase is used 11 times in the first 14 verses of Ephesians. It's used 36 times in Ephesians, and it's used something like 160 times in all of Paul's letters, compared with five. So being in, in Christ is an incredibly significant deal for Paul. In fact, we might say it's the sum of all that Paul understands salvation to be. And it makes sense. Like, being in Christ is so much bigger than the other way around. You know, of course, the Holy Spirit dwells in us and Christ is in us. But, but what's promised to us by being in Christ is so much deeper and richer and more full than the other way around. Well, summer's coming up, and I mean, it feels like summer's kind of getting here even tonight. I'm sweating bullets. Looking forward to warmer weather, late, long, lazy summer days, right? What's better than on a hot summer day having a nice, cool sip of water? Somebody could use a nice, cool sip of water right now. I can see it in your eyes. What's better? I'll tell you one thing that's better is jumping in a pool that's just a little bit too cold. When you're, when you're burning hot and you jump into a pool and it just engulfs you and you just feel your body temperature drop, oh man, how good is that? When I, when I was in high school, uh, I played football and we would do these summer workouts on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And our summer workouts always consisted of like an arm day or a leg day, and then we'd finish it off by running perimeters. I've shared this with you before about perimeters. We would, you'd run you know, the width of the field, then the length of the field, then the width of the field, then the length of the field, and you'd do it by position group. And if your position group didn't do it within a certain amount of time, you had about 10 seconds to catch your breath, and you had to run it again until you got it in time. That's the kind of things that we did. And I remember a buddy, Steven, he played on the defensive line. I, I played running back, so I was with the skill group. And anyway, we, we, we got smoked that day. We were soaking wet, and we decided we're going to get in my Ford Explorer, and we're going to turn on the heat, and we're going to try and make it all the way to my parents' house and just get as like, sickly, nasty, sweaty as we could so that we could jump into my parents' swimming pool and just enjoy you know, the, the cool water of the swimming pool like we'd never done before. And we did that, and you know, praise the Lord, we didn't have heat strokes in the vehicle on the way over to my house. But what's better than just jumping into a pool of cold, delicious water? 
I think what we could say is that Christ in us versus us in Christ is the difference between taking a sip of cool water and being plunged into a swimming pool, being plunged into the ocean where the water covers, engulfs, and envelops us. The idea of being in Christ is what Bible thinkers and teachers have called the Christian's union with Christ. That when we place our faith in Jesus, not when we do enough good deeds, not when we give enough alms to the poor, not when we perform enough righteousness, no, when we place our allegiance on Jesus, we're united to him, and listen to this, what is true of Jesus becomes true of his people. Everything true of Christ becomes true of his people. All that belongs to Christ is given to his people. In verse 6, it says that God, has, God has, has given us grace. He has blessed us by giving us grace with which he has blessed us. How? Where? In the beloved. We are placed in the beloved and we receive all of the, the love and goodness of God that the Father has given to the beloved, the Son. Think about what Paul says here. We are in the beloved. The beloved of old, the apple of the Father's eye since before time began, his very own Son. And when we believe on Christ, we are placed in in him. In Colossians 3, Paul says we are hidden with Christ in God. It's like those Russian nesting dolls. We are hidden with Christ who is in God. Martin Luther was a thinker in the church, and I was reading a, a, a prayer book a couple of months ago, and I happened to read this confession. It's so good. Martin Luther says this, O Lord, I do not deserve a glimpse of heaven, and I am unable with my works to redeem myself from sin, death, the devil, and hell. Nevertheless, you have given me your son, Jesus Christ, who is far more precious and dear than heaven and much stronger than sin, death, the devil, and hell. For this I rejoice, praise, and thank you, O God. Without cost and out of pure grace, you have given me this boundless blessing in your dear son. Through him, you take sin, death, and hell from me and do grant me all that belongs to him. Amen. The Father and the Son have dwelt in perfect union with the Holy Spirit forever. And the Father sends the Son, the Son willingly takes on flesh. Why? So that he could take on the entirety of our infirmities and our afflictions and give us his life. And this is why it's so important that we talk about at Christmas time, Jesus becoming a man. He like literally became human. Jesus becomes a man so that he can take on all that affects us, brothers and sisters, all the, the evil, our sin, death, hell, all of it, Jesus takes on himself to be raised again on Easter Sunday and to grant us the life, the, the permanent, imperishable life that he himself possesses. That's why Paul says that we're made alive with Christ. That's why he says that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul even says the Father, uh, that the, the, the relationship that Jesus has had with the Father, his, his literally prehistoric relationship is ours now in Christ. Ephesians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Have it on the screen. Paul says, In Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access to the Father with confidence through our faith in him. We are in the beloved, and the unending waterfall of love and delight the Father has always had for the Son is now extended to the Son's people, to those who are in Christ. We are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now, Jesus in our hearts, Christ in us, though true, is often a painfully reductionistic way of speaking about what's actually taking place, believer. The way we talk about it can be really trite, and often it sort of uh, works itself out in the way that we, we think about 
Jesus is kind of an addendum to the stuff that I'm already doing. It's like I've kind of got my commitments and I've got my interests and I've got the stuff that I'm going to do anyway. And then when there's space, then we'll kind of sprinkle Jesus in and kind of see where things fall. The, the alternative is to be in Christ, to be wholly subsumed into Christ, to think like Paul does. And it means that our whole selves are enclosed in him. Being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, it's everything that gets wet now belongs to Jesus. And so Paul tells us to present our members as instruments of righteousness. What are our members? It's our, our limbs, our body parts, our whole selves belong to Christ. Baptism is such a great picture of that because it shows us that we are plunged into Christ. We are plunged into his death and raised to walk in newness of life. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The second thing is that God purposed to purify you. God purposed to purify you. Now get this, Paul says. When the hot magma of the center of the earth was just room temperature, hadn't even got hot yet, God purposed to gather a people into Jesus and to make them holy and blameless. God has always intended to have a people, a, a pure whole, good people like himself, and he does this in Christ. Jesus lives a sinless, perfect life to atone for the sin of all who believe in him. And then by his spirit, he progressively renovates and restores his people to righteousness. And this is really one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from every other faith. We're not saved by good deeds when it comes to our belief in Christ. We're not saved by good deeds, but we are saved to good deeds, It's like God looked out on us and he saw us in our plight and our our self-interested, little, petty, vindictive, grudge-holding states. And he said, I love them too much to allow them to live that way. And so he comes to us, Christ takes on humanity, places us in Christ, and he gives us his spirit to teach us to walk in the freedom and the beauty and the delight of holiness, of of selflessness, of self-forgetfulness. God has purpose to purify a people. But that's not all he purposed to do. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us and the beloved. God purposed to adopt you, Christian. Now, the internet is mostly awful. Every, mostly. We can all agree on that. But there's two things on the internet that always get me. Two types of videos that always get me. The first is... Uh, dad's returning home from deployment. Like, you send me a link to one of those videos, I'm done for. I'm a puddle. It's so, so good. But the second kind of video are gotcha day ceremonies. Anybody know what I'm talking about? These are videos that show when moms and dads are finally granted the legal parental status over a child. When they, when they, the day when they are finally adopting this child. It is so, so deeply beautiful. So it's, it's beautiful even beyond words. We have several folks in our body who have adopted, who are working through that right now. One of my college buddies has adopted several children, and it's just beautiful. It's an amazing display of grace. But even human adoption, as beautiful as it is, only gets at a glimpse of what God has done for us in Christ. God has always been intent on having a people, and listen, the plan has always been for that people to share in the sonship of his son, Jesus Paul says we're finally seeing God's ages-long plan. It's finally unveiled for us. We see the Christian, by placing our faith in Jesus, we are adopted. 
This is crucial for Christians and something else that distinguishes our faith. God is infinitely transcendent. He is beyond and above all things. And yet, in Christ, God is our Father. In Christ, the the Son, God is not removed or distant or indifferent to us. In fact, Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven. Now, we're all children of God in one sense, and that all humans were created by God. In fact, Paul kind of uses that language later on in the book of Ephesians. The scriptures do use that language sparingly. But in another sense... An idea that's all over the New Testament is that there is only one Son. There's only one Son of God. But watch this. When we believe on that Son, we are given His Holy Spirit, united to Him, welcomed into Him. And what happens when we're united to the one Son of God? We're adopted and given His status as Son, sons through Jesus Christ. The relationship the Son has had with the Father is now ours. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, said, The Son of God became man in order that men could become sons of God. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, to the praise of his glorious grace. In love, God adopted us according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. But that's not all. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. There's three things back to back to back here. God redeems us, he forgives us, and then he lavishes grace on us. God has redeemed us. He has redeemed you, Christian. Now, redemption is slavery language. It's, It's rooted in the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. The Exodus is the story of the people of Israel who've been enslaved by Egypt, God sends judgment on Egypt, and the households covered with the blood of the Lamb were rescued, redeemed from Egypt. The New Testament tells us that Jesus himself and and teachers like Paul connect those events with the work of Jesus. They say that we're people who are enslaved, but not to Egypt, to something far worse. We are enslaved to ourselves, to our own desires, the own lust of the flesh, pride and passion of the eyes. That those in our our pity, self-centered, evil deeds, and all that we're guilty of, we're enslaved to those things, we're enslaved to death, enslaved to Satan himself. But God redeems us through Jesus. And it's specifically mentioned here that we're redeemed through the blood of Jesus, and he's intentionally evoking the story of the Exodus. And so when we believe on Christ, we're given freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from Satan, but not just freedom from, we are given freedom to Freedom to good deeds and to righteousness, to holiness, to joy, to light, and to life. And we're free to life together with God. The way Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2 is that we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. But that's not all. God also forgave us. Do you know what it's like to feel guilt? Have you ever felt guilt? I'm not just saying the experience of feeling guilty, because that's not always trustworthy. Because sometimes we feel guilty and we shouldn't, and other times we don't feel guilty and we should. I'm talking about those instances where we have done wrong and we know it and we can't sleep because of it. And it just eats us up. In Psalm 32, David says, it's like the sun is like wasting my bones. It's like I'm out under the hot, bitter sun and it's causing my bones to, like, to rot out. It eats us up. It's like we are ruled over a condemnation that we know we deserve. But Paul says, Christian, we have received 
forgiveness of sins in Christ. We have redemption through his blood. It's almost like he sees this as two sides of the same coin. That when we confess our sins, we are redeemed from the the punishment of our sins, from the, the ruling presence and power of our sins, and from the experience of guilt that our sins bring us. When we confess our sins to God and place our faith in Jesus, we're forgiven. We have nothing to fear, not God's condemnation that is just and good because the judgment we deserved was placed on Christ, and we're forgiven by his blood. In our union with Jesus, Jesus takes on himself all that we have done, all that we have thought, all that we have not done, so that we could be forgiven, so that our sin would no longer be held against us. And do we understand the revolutionary power of that idea, that our guilt can be eliminated in Christ? We are redeemed, we are forgiven from sin and forgiven to life with God and holiness and peace. We don't have to be like dogs returning to their vomit again and again and again. We have been called out of darkness into marvelous light. And why would God do this? Verse 7. It's according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The sixth thing is that God has lavished his grace on you. Paul says God has lavished his grace. And what is grace? How could we define that? We could say something like unmerited favor with a heavy on the unmerited part. A kindness we don't deserve, a gift. And the, the truth is, is that everything that God does is done from grace. Because God has no need and there is no reason for God to do any of the things that he does. And so in a very real way, we could say that grace is the, the, the fundamental sort of driving energy behind what all God does and has ever done. He didn't have to create us, and yet he did. He didn't have to send his son, yet he did. He didn't have to do any of the things that we've outlined here, yet he did. And it's because God is a God of grace, a God who delights in showing unmerited favor. And does God give grace begrudgingly, grumpily, against his will, in the same way that my kids say the blessing once we volunteer them to say the blessing for it? Does does God give grace in that way? No, no. He lavishes his grace on us in all wisdom and insight. This word lavish is used in scripture to mean something like abound or increase or overflow. God lavishes his grace on his people. We are sinners. We are rebellious and we are crooked and we are self-interested and we are broken and we're bent in on ourselves and we're petty and we cut in line and we fume when people cut us off in traffic and we lust and we lie and we hold grudges and we start wars and we would ruin our families instead of humble ourselves and we hate our neighbors and we deserve only judgment. But this is what God gives to us. Grace. He blesses us in the beloved. He makes us holy. He adopts us. He redeems us. And he forgives us. And in doing this, verse 9, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The seventh idea is that God has made his plan for the ages known to you. You want to know what God has been up to? what God has wanted to do since the beginning, he has wanted to gather a people up under the Lord Jesus Christ who would worship and who would adore and who would delight in Jesus so that Jesus could receive all the glory, all the praise, all the honor forever and ever and ever. And that is exactly what he's done 
in us, Christian. His purpose has always been to gather us up to sing of the glory of Jesus. From the days of Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, from the days before those days, his plan was to set up Jesus over everything so that we could see and look and delight on him. Now, Ephesians 1 is like drinking from a fire hose. I could do with fire hose right now. Anybody else? I see those fans waving. How are we to respond? If you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, I would just ask you this question. Could you believe this? Isn't something about this at least a little bit compelling to you? Just the, the, the central message of grace and forgiveness that is offered in Jesus, who's punished for us so that we could receive his status as a son and so that we could enjoy and know the Father forever, doesn't this speak to you? Doesn't, isn't this compelling? What do you make of this? Does this sound like the ramblings of a bunch of lunatics? Or is there something actually deeply beautiful about the way the New Testament talks about salvation? I would encourage you, I mean, I, I would... I would plead with you to speak with whoever you came with tonight, if you're not a believer. Talk with whoever brought you. Be honest about where you're at. Come grab me after this or any of our pastors or leadership. We would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Christ and believe on Christ. If you're a Christian, what I'd say to you is this. I'd ask you this question. Could you press in? One author said that the goal of our objective union with Christ is communion. The goal of union is communion. It's a subjective experience of Christ. Four times here he says that God does all of this to the praise of his glorious grace. And what does it look like for you, believer, to be captured by these truths of Ephesians 1 and live and push into to the praise of his glorious grace? To press into your union with Jesus and the access that we have to the Father. To press in and to know him and to enjoy him and to grow, to, to behold him and grow into his image. On Easter Sunday, we are confronted with the unique living Jesus. The unique speaking, active, present tense Jesus. And on Easter Sunday, we read passages like Ephesians 1, what he inspired by his Holy Spirit so many centuries ago, and he invites us to himself. This is not about TCGS. This is not, this is not about uh, our church, this is not even about the people that you came with. This is about Jesus standing before you now, the Jesus of Ephesians 1 who invites you to know him and to press into him. Whoever you are, however long you have followed him, whatever, whatever you brought in here, Jesus looks at you and confronts you with himself and says, come to me. Come to me, all of you. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, and in me you will find rest. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In the next few moments, I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to invite you to consider the words that are, uh, the questions for reflection that are on your bulletin. We provide those each week. Just sit and think and pray through those for a few moments, and then we will sing of the Father's love for us to conclude our time together. Lord Jesus, we believe and we pray that you would help us with our unbelief, that we would see and behold you and all your glory for all that you are, all that you were given to us to be in these scriptures. And I pray that you would help us to see and understand, that you would help us to, 
comprehend just some, some piece of, of what is shown to us here about the, the greatness of the salvation that you have accomplished through Christ. We thank you that you have made known to us your plan for the ages, which is to exalt Jesus over and above everything. We thank you that you purposed to include us in that. And we thank you that you, that you send Jesus to grant access to you, Father. And I pray that we would, we would find ourselves just, just not cold to the gospel message or cold to the, the truth of our salvation or, or bored or disinterested or, or willy-nilly or cavalier with it or whatever. We pray that we'd be captured and raptured, that we would be gripped by what you've done for us in Christ, and that we would press in to know you more and to live holy, godly lives that are modeled after Christ himself. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.